You know, our daughters love seek and find books. You know what I'm talking about, seek and find books? Like, what is the most well-known seek and find book? Where's Waldo? You know, you have this page, uh, this picture with all these figures and objects, and it's just so busy, it's so full of things, and you're like, okay, where's Waldo, where's Waldo? And then if you find Waldo, then you have to find, there's like, he has a nemesis, like Baldo or something. Uh, you have to find three penguins, or four diamonds, or find a woman with an umbrella, or a man watering his garden, or whatever these things are. You have a list of things you have to seek and find. Our daughters love that. And quite frankly, I love it. And some of these are really hard, even for grown-ups. But more than seek and find books, I love a good seek and find story. Let me tell you the best seek and find story I've ever heard in my life. It was told by one of our lead elders at the church that we came from in Nevada. And he said that years ago at uh, his 25th wedding anniversary, his wife and, and he went to Hawaii to celebrate their 25th anniversary, and they went with another couple, uh, some friends of theirs, and so they were just having a ball. I don't know what island they were on, but they're all over the island, and they stay at a beachfront resort, and they're on the beach all day, and they go swimming in the ocean, and they go to restaurants, and they traipse all around the island. And that night, he gets back to his hotel room, and he's washing his hands in the restroom, and in his room, and he looks down, and he realizes his wedding ring is gone. And so now he does what any good dad does. He freaks out. <laughs> and he's calling every restaurant where they're at. He calls downstairs to the front desk to look in the lost and found. I mean, he, he, he doesn't know where. They're combing the beach where they were at, and then it dawns on him. He knows exactly where it is. It's somewhere in the ocean where they're swimming, and they covered three, four hundred yards of oceanfront, probably 10, 20 yards deep. I mean, we're not talking about finding a needle in a haystack. This is way more improbable and impossible than that. And so they're combing through, they're looking through the water for hours and hours, nothing. He gets back to his hotel room that night, and he lays in bed, and he just can't sleep. He's so distraught, so distressed. He doesn't sleep a wink, and so he gets up early the next morning, like four in the morning, and he's praying, God, I know you can do all things. I know you're a God of grace, and you do not have to let me find this ring. But if you do, I'll worship you. And if you don't, I'll worship you. No matter what, you are good. So he seeks the Lord. So he goes down to the beach at four in the morning. The sun is just coming up over the ocean. And as he's looking, he's walking on the sand, he looks over and he sees this little shimmering light, a little you know, glintering thing, and he's thinking, okay, maybe it's like a pop can that someone threw in the ocean. I mean, the, the light was hitting it just right from the sunrise, or maybe it's like a metallic rock with some metals in it or something. Was, ah, you know what, it's probably nothing, but let me go check it out. And he goes over, and he looks down, and upon this rock, he finds nothing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Listen, this is not a seek and lost story. Who cares about seek and, I have like dozens of seek and lost stories. This is a seek and find story. Guess what he finds right on top of a rock? His ring. How improbable is that? How awesome is our God? That's incredible. I mean, the statistic impossibility of that. But there is something that we are to seek and find that is infinitely more valuable. In fact, Jesus literally says, seek and you will, what? Find. Not might find. Not could find. 
Not as my wife says, which she says all Southern people say, might could find. <laughs> Apparently that's a thing. Seek and you might could find. No, this is seek and you will find. You will find. So seek what? Or should I say seek who? Well, here's the main idea. Here's the whole purpose. God desires that we seek him. Now, that is a simple premise and one that if you've been in church for years or decades, you're like, I know, seek the Lord, I get it. Yes, I've heard this over and over, seek the Lord, I get it. Listen, this is simple, but it's profound. God desires that we seek him. You know, in baseball, teams or players have slumps. And whether you're a Cubs fan or a Sox fan, you know that well. <laughs> My condolences to you uh, right now. There, what is a slump? A slump is when a team has a stretch of games where they lose, or a batter has a stretch of games where they go hitless, and so they're in a slump. And the reason I'm preaching this sermon that I'm about to preach is because I believe summer, more than any other season, has the greatest potential for a spiritual slump. Some of you might right now be in a summer spiritual slump. I know that I have been. We get lackadaisical. We get lazy, we get apathetic, we get busy. There's so much going on, sports leagues and vacations and this or that, and we just get in this spiritual slump. Well, I don't want us to be in a spiritual slump as individuals, families, or as a church family. So let's talk about that. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. That's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. It's before Ezra, Nehemiah, after First and Second Kings. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. God declares Israel... The nation as his people, and he redeems his people. He redeems them out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. We talked about that in our last sermon series in the life of Moses. So God claims Israel as his people. He redeems them. But you can take the people out of Egypt, and yet it's hard to take Egypt out of the people. And so alas, over the years, sin was deeply embedded in their hearts, and so they rebel against God and they follow after and worship other false gods. They didn't seek God. In fact, they sought fulfillment, satisfaction, contentment, joy in anything else but God. And this disregard of God led his people to destruction. Centuries later, they have a civil war. And Israel is divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, often referred to as Israel or Samaria, and the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. And Israel and Judah for centuries are just duking it out, hating one another, civil war breaks out. And so First and Second Chronicles is a, an overview compilation of all these stories throughout history, the history of Israel, specifically the kings. And it demonstrates the need for a messianic king. I mean, you see how the Israel's kings and Judah's kings keep failing and failing, and you get the sense that maybe the only true, pure, noble leadership is God himself. However, in order for that to work, the people must seek him by faith. The phrase, seek the Lord, is found in First and Second Chronicles 11 times, way more than any other book of the Bible. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. And so today we're going to look at one specific king in particular the tragedy of King Asa. So look at chapter 14. Asa takes over as king from his father Abijah. And look at verse 2. It says, 
Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. You have this pattern throughout Chronicles where it'll say there was such and such a king and he did what was good in the eyes of God or the other camp is you had such and such a king who did what was evil in the eyes of God. Here you have a saw. He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. But notice he is referred to as the Lord, his God. This wasn't merely the God of his father. He wasn't born into a religion. This wasn't the faith of his parents. The Lord was his God. And of all things in this world that could have his allegiance, power, prestige, position, possessions, any other P word, God was his ultimate main priority. And Asa demonstrates his allegiance to God in the next few verses. So look at verses three through six. He destroys the idols in the land that people were worshiping that were capturing their hearts. Their hearts were being drawn away from the Lord. And so Asa removes them, even the high places. Now, what were the high places? Well, the high places were worship centers where they had altars dedicated to false gods, and they are usually up in the hills, thus high places. These were those spiritual, hard-to-reach places. And so when a king was scrubbing the land of idolatry, these were those, again, hard-to-reach high places that served as kind of a litmus test. If a king tore down the high places, it showed that his whole heart was devoted to God. Unfortunately, most kings did not tear down the high places. King Asaw did. You know, when I meet with people Sometimes I'll meet with people who are just going through a spiritual desert. And they're, just, they're like, I just don't feel close to the Lord anymore. It's like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I'm not walking with God like I used to. I'm just a mess. I say, okay, tell me more about that. Let, let's talk about that. And I'll say, do you love Jesus? Oh, yes, I love Jesus. I love Jesus so much. Okay. And as we're talking about that, what does that mean? What do you mean you love Jesus? And they'll, they'll talk about, well, Jesus is my Lord. He, he has everything except. It's like allowing Jesus to come to your house and say, Jesus, mi casa, su casa. You have every room in this entire house, every, every room, every closet. You can even go in the kitchen. You can go in the, the den. You can go everywhere, but see this room that's boarded up, has the caution tape? You can't go in there, Jesus. I'm sorry. That's, that's closed off. But, but you have every other room. You, you, you can go every, anywhere else. Mi casa, su casa. Just not this room. And listen, folks. If, the Lord, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so God is holy. We talked about that in the last series. God is holy. He doesn't mess around with sin. He doesn't play, which means we should not mess around with sin. Go to great lengths to have God destroy any and all sinful strongholds in your life, even those hard-to-reach high places. So Asa destroys the high places. He commands the people to seek the Lord and follow him, and for the first 10 years of his reign, there's no war. The land is at peace. God blesses the people. He grants them peace. They're at rest. He, Asa, during this time, builds up cities, fortifies them. He assembles a large army of 580,000 soldiers, and God prospers his kingdom. Now, you might say, okay, yeah, it's easy to seek the Lord and follow him when things are good, when things are easy, when things are prosperous. Hold on now, because look at verse 9. 
there's this war general named Zerah the Ethiopian. And Zerah is one bad mamma jamma. <laughs> and Zerah comes with an army of one million soldiers. Now, the U.S. military is the second largest military in the world. How many active troops do you think are right now in the U.S. military? How many would you guess? How many of you would say over 500,000? Over 800,000? Over a million? There are 1.4 million active troops, which is a lot. So this army is almost as large as the entire U.S. military, every branch, and they have 300 chariots. Chariots back then were like tanks. So you have a million-man army, 300 tanks coming against Asa and the army of Judah. Asa's army is half of that, so the odds are clearly stacked against them. Normally, most people would cower under these circumstances, but look at verse 10. King Asa goes out to meet Zerah. And his army is lined up against Zerah and his massive one million man army. They're facing each other in the field of battle. I've never been in battle. I've never been in the field of battle in this scene where it's kind of like Braveheart. You have one army facing against the other army and they're all lined up and they're ready to go. But I have played Red Rover. (laughs) (laughs) Which I know is not the same. But if you're not familiar with the concept of Red Rover, you have two teams facing off against each other. And they're holding hands, and they're making a chain. And one team says, Red Rover, Red Rover, send so-and-so right over. And that person, with all their might, they run, and they try to bust through the chain. They try to bust through one of the, the, the links in the chain to break apart the people who are holding hands. And if they do that, they get to take one of the people back to their team. If they don't, well, they get clotheslined and probably a concussion, <laughs> which is probably why kids don't play this much anymore. But imagine that you are playing Red Rover and you look across the other side and there are 3,300 pound NFL linemen. And then you look at your team and it's you and your scrawny buddy who's like 100 pounds soaking wet. So you look at their side, you look at your side, you look at their side, you look at your side and it's not looking so good. It'd be intimidating, right? A saw would be rightfully intimidated. He looks at their side, he looks at his side, he looks at their side, he looks at his side, and what's he going to do? Asa looks, and he enters into one of the greatest mindsets you could ever have, possibly as a follower of the Lord. He gets desperate. And desperation is a powerful motivator to seek the Lord. I've said this before, I'll say it again, when you are at the bottom of a well. You have hit rock bottom in your life. You have nowhere to look but what? Up. Nowhere to look but up. And too often we bemoan difficult circumstances rather than rejoicing in the opportunity they present to seek the Lord. That doesn't happen when things are peachy. Usually. It doesn't happen when things are going our way and everything sing-songy and wonderful. Usually those aren't the times we seek the Lord. It's in the desperate times that we seek the Lord. Discomfort and desperation drop us to our knees. So whether you are losing a wedding ring or maybe you're going through a spiritual desert, some of you are there right now. Maybe you're jobless. Maybe you're childless. Maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe uh, there's some brokenness in your family. Your marriage is struggling. Maybe there's persecution. 
Maybe there's health issues, mental health or physical health. Whatever suffering you're going through, use it to seek the Lord in desperation. And so in Asa's desperation, what does he do? He seeks the Lord. He cries out to him. Look at his prayer in verse 11. O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. Do you know what humility is? Humility is a proper understanding of a difference in stature and then submission to the one who is of far greater stature. So humility is understanding how weak and frail we are and how mighty our God is and we submit to him. We recognize that difference, that infinite difference in stature and then we submit to him because he is so infinitely greater than we are. That's humility. I mean, you know when... uh, you're downstairs and you hear screaming in your bathroom upstairs. Wah! And you run upstairs, what's wrong, what's wrong? There's a bug. And whether it's your kids or your husband, <laughs> you're like, listen, that little spider is more afraid of you than you are of it. We've all said that, right? Now, is that true? I don't know. But it better be. Do you know why? If that little spider, that little bug, does not recognize the difference in stature between it, a bug-sized bug, and me, a human-sized person, it's going to get smushed. So there should be an understanding of difference of stature and a submission to that difference of stature. That's humility. So when we realize how big God is, we cry out to God, who can compare to you? Who can compare? Who can help me more than you can? And Asah acknowledges that no one is like our God. Look what he says. No one, none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Oh, Lord our God, we rely on you. So why bother going to anyone else? There's a sense of helplessness that we need in our prayers. Do you know what the shortest prayer in the Bible is? Not the shortest verse. Some of you are thinking John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Not the shortest verse. What is the shortest recorded prayer in the Bible? Anyone know? It's Matthew 14, 30. In Matthew 14, Jesus' disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and it's getting choppy. The waters are choppy. There's wind, and there's waves, and it's foggy. It's cloudy. It's in the storm. It's hard to see, and they see a figure walking on the water. And they... <laughs> which I think this shows there's humor in the Bible. One of them's like, it's a ghost! And then probably one of the other disciples is like, no, that doesn't make any sense. I think it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And when Peter hears that, he says, Lord, if it's you, call to me, beckon me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that's not a normal occurrence. I mean, he is, I'm not talking ice, I mean liquid water. He's walking on water toward Jesus. And then it says, he gets afraid. He looks at the wind and the waves. He takes his focus off of the face of Jesus and looks upon all his surroundings and he begins to sink. And that's when he prays a prayer of desperation, shortest prayer in the Bible, which is what? Lord, save me. 
And Jesus answers that prayer right then and there. In fact, it says he reaches out and grabs him and pulls him up, which means Peter was within arm's length. He was that close to Jesus, and he starts sinking. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him. He answers the prayer. I think he answers that prayer because that's a prayer that God always delights in, always. He always honors that prayer. He loves that prayer. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. He will always answer that prayer. Always. Because it's a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer where our weakness appeals to his strength. So when you seek the Lord, be desperate. There's no pride in desperation. We approach God's throne of grace in humility. We rely on him. It's complete dependence on God. But look what else he prays. He says, in your name we have come against this multitude. In other words, we are stepping out in faith for your glory. So when you seek the Lord, don't not only be desperate, but be deflective. Deflect glory back to God. Because it's not about our glory. It's not about our reputation. We say this at Bethel all the time. It's all about him. Deflect, deflect glory back to him. So be desperate, be deflective, and then look what he says. Oh Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Imagine that you are a kid and you're on the playground and you're having a ball. I mean, you're on the swings, you're on the monkey bars, and this big kid comes up to you and shoves you, pushes you, shoves your face right into the dirt. Big bully and just shoves you, and you fall, and he's laughing at you, he's insulting you. Now, there are a lot of options of what you can do at that point, and I'm not going to get into what you could do or should do. Actually, I'll tell you what you could do. You could go to your strongest, most muscle-bound friend. I'm talking like, let's say you knew Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> a.k.a. The Rock, you know, Hollywood, Dwayne Johnson, a guy who has, like, his muscles have muscles. I mean, I don't even think he has a neck. It's just, like, head, shoulders. I mean, he's just huge mountain of a man. And so you go up to Dwayne Johnson, and you're like, Dwayne, Dwayne, do you see that kid over there? Yeah. He pushed us. That's ingenious. Because did he push us? No. He pushed you. He didn't push us. What are you doing? Your weakness is appealing to his strength. You are getting him involved in the fight. And so Dwayne Johnson stands up and he's like, oh yeah? And he does that Hollywood smoldering look <laughs> that I can't do with my eyebrows. I don't know how he does it. He says, let's go take care of this menace. Let's go take care of this problem. And you go with your friend, Dwayne Johnson, to take care of this bully. Your weakness appealed to his strength. Appeal to God's strength. Identify yourself as belonging to him because when you do that, when you say, Lord, Defend us. Defend me. Now the fight is the Lord's. Make it the Lord's fight. So when you seek the Lord, be desperate, be deflective, but also be defended. And look at the result in verses 12 through 15. The Lord completely defeats the Ethiopians. I mean, just annihilates them. It says they were broken before the Lord and his army, the army of Judah, he wins the victory himself on behalf of Asa and Judah. Now look at chapter 15. This, this passage is the crux of this whole story. Verse 1, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, so Azariah is a prophet, Hear me, as 